The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Watching Sportbox, the S&P closes lower but pairs losses after retail sales come in better than expected despite Delta variant concerns. Meanwhile, President Biden lays out plans to raise taxes on the highest earners and big business as he looks to fund his infrastructure package and social policies. Where is it written? All the tax breaks in the American tax code go to corporations on the very top. I think it's enough. I'm tired of it. China applies to join the new Pacific Trade Pact in a bid to boost its regional role just a day after the formation of a US-led Asia-Pacific security alliance. Polls are open across most of Russia, with ballot boxes in Moscow opening right now as the country votes in three days of COVID-impacted federal elections. Elsewhere, you've got mask hiking guidance yet again as the shipping giant says it expects freight tightness to run into next year. Meanwhile, the Citroen CEO Vincent Cobay tells CNBC the auto industry needs greater control over supply chains. We've lived years of stability and for the last two years have been years of instability. And that's what has triggered this crisis much more than a particular technology or a particular type of supply. So let's kick off the program this morning on some of those surprising data points. The U.S. retail sales number unexpectedly rose in August, despite fears the ongoing spread of the Delta variant and supply chain issues would hamper consumer demand. Data from the Census Bureau showed a jump in online sales with back-to-school shopping activity also boosting the headline numbers. Well, weekly jobless claims in the U.S., came in above expectations at 332,000. One week after the reading fell to a pandemic-era low, the rise was led by layoffs in Louisiana as the follow-through effects of Hurricane Ida continue to work their way through the U.S. economy. Ah, sorry, Joe, I didn't realize that was my cue. I'm too busy looking at excess savings in the United States because you said the surprising retail sales figures. I know the producers made you say that, but are they surprising when we've got over a trillion dollars worth of excess savings in the US as well? And uh, also on your jobless figures as well, the, what, the continuing claims? Lowest level since March last, March last year. I wonder if Gambles has got a, an idea on that one. We'll come to him in a few moments. Anyway, the president has laid out his argument for raising taxes on the wealthiest Americans and corporations as he looks to fund his multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package and social safety net package. Uh, Democrats plan to raise the rate of corporate tax by 5.5 percentage points whilst hiking the top individual tax rate by 2.6 percentage points. Speaking at the White House, the president said it's time for change. For a long time, this economy has worked great for those at the very top. Uh, ordinary, hardworking Americans, the people who built this country, have been basically cut out of the deal. And I've said this from the time I announced I was going to run. I believe this is a moment of potentially great change. This is our moment to deal working people back into the economy. 
This is our moment to prove the American people that their government works for them, not just for the big corporations, those at the very top. Uh, the data, uh, Steve was just alluding to the retail sales there, but we also had the unemployment claims too. And the market has its expectations and what you've had uh, miss on some of those uh, initial feeling uh, consensus numbers in the market that investors are guiding towards. And that's just creating a lot of caution at this stage. And while we had a pick up in the retail sales, you had that lift too uh, in the number of Americans applying for first time unemployment benefits. So that is giving us another weak cure on the labour market. And don't forget uh, the market has been looking for this dual mandate on the labor market, but also in inflation. And while inflation might be one target that the Fed thinks it's pretty much achieved at this point, the labor market is still that missing link. So the data, you can see it was a very cautious day on the back of uh, this crossing. The Dow, the S&P again flipping back into the red. We've seen a lot of negative sessions over the course of the last couple of weeks and for the month of September. The Nasdaq, though, just eking out a slight gain. What it means over the course of the week as we move up to, towards the Friday session, we did have some some small gains, about four-tenths of a percent on the Dow, thanks to a little bit of green early on in the week. But uh, again, no clear direction here as we talk about very small moves on the market. A third of a percent of the upside so far for the S&P 500, the Nasdaq similar range as well. So we haven't strayed too far over the course of this week. Let's get into Treasuries. There was a bit of a nudge higher on that uh, bond on the 10-year, but again, we haven't moved aggressively. 1.33 is where we're perched. And a quick look at those big retail uh, numbers to see how some of the big stores reacted to what we had on that 0.7% push higher in the month of August on the retail sales. You can see it was uh, positive for the sector. Nordstrom, the one faring very strongly, 3.4%, and Macy's, so a couple of big department stores, picking up a trade on the back of the print around the August spending patterns. Jeff. Terrific. Thanks very much, Karen. Uh, Paul Gambles is uh, with us, co-founder of MBMG Group. Paul, very good morning to you. Let's just kick off, I think, with uh, a here and now call on what investors should be doing with major U.S. indices. As we look at these markets, you know, we're going a little sideways over the month. But the momentum still seems to be by the dips and trending higher over the six-month story. What's your advice to investors this morning? Yeah, good morning, Jeff. Morning, everyone. Um, our advice is just be a little bit cautious because we, we think that the market is kind of very finely poised, um, waiting for you know what potentially could be a very, very big move. But we've got no direction, uh, no idea which direction that could be. I realize that doesn't sound helpful. But frankly, you know, there are just so many unanswered questions out there right now um, that and until we start to get answers to those, our advice is actually, um, you know, un- unless you can really afford to take what could be a pretty big hit and, and possibly even a permanent hit, then it's it's better to, you know, just sit on the sidelines, at least hold some dry powder right now. So we've actually been, having been sort of fully invested for quite a long time, we're actually quite dramatically raising cash levels right now. There's some great profits to take. Take those profits and, um, and you know, fear of missing out should, you know, you should, you should be able to swallow your fear of missing out rather than expose yourself to the risk of, of what could be some pretty pretty significant losses if we get a reversal. Did you not see the programming this week? Ray Dalio told us that cash is trash and uh, moving to cash uh, means that you step away from potentially the extension of this uh, post-COVID lockdown rebound rally. 
He's right about the second point, but um, we just don't know that that rally is is ready to continue. Um, you know, if if uh, conditions aren't right, and that largely means you know a bunch of things that are you know they're not really fundamental, they're not really knowable. It's it's about whether we continue getting the level of policy support that we've been getting. Um, unless we see that, then um, you know trash could be 15, 20, 25 percent better than a correction being in equities. So um, we're not saying go 100 percent of cash. I don't think we've ever said that. But uh, as I say, having been fully invested for um, a pretty long time right now, we're actually saying, you know, build up those cash levels significantly. And also, um, we, we still see that there's there's value in treasuries, which uh, I, I guess uh, I guess Bridgewater is still holding uh, quite a lot of treasuries as as part of their approach. But um, we're, we, we, we still think that treasuries and after what's happened in the last couple of days, gold and gold miners are one of the best ways to hedge that equity risk. But that risk has suddenly gone, you know, up and off the scale, um, even though the opportunities are there. Hi, it's Karen. Just jumping in. Let's get a little bit more of that bad news out of the way than the potential downside, because, you know, some of the, the big catalysts out there, taxation rises in the United States. The market's not assessing that as being monumental for earnings over the course of time. A lot of bad news out of China from the data corporate side around liquidity with the major property group, uh, targeted approach from regulators. But uh, the other big fact, of course, seems to be the data and what that means for policy. So uh, just weigh up those factors. Uh, is it going to be the, the good news that becomes bad news for the market? Is it China? Or is it uh, the policy from the Biden administration? What's the big negative in the room? Possibly every single one of those. Um, you know, bad news becoming good news. Um, at some point, that could just run out of steam. You've got to remember, we've got the uh, we've got to look forward to the whole debt ceiling fiasco uh, going on. We've got the reappointment of Powell or not. Um, there, there are so many you know risks to to policy. And, and, and what we can do is we can actually track what's going on at the moment. And um, for the last few weeks, we haven't really seen any increase in the uh, in the U.S. so-called Public debt, sovereign debt. It's uh, it's actually, if anything, been slightly decreasing, which is a you know that's a really negative story for markets, especially when it's happening at a time when China China's actually tightening up on liquidity as well. So it's actually been the the expansion in the balance sheet that the Fed put in place already that the banks are now taking up. That's what's kept the market going for the last few weeks, if if it's been kept going at all. Um, and un until we really get some clarity on are the Fed going to keep their their pedal to the metal, which they probably aren't. Um, you know, we've got to see how that feeds back into the markets. And there's a, there's a real risk that, um, that that dwarfs any of the other stories out there, the tax story. Even, you know, geopolitics is now starting to rear its, its ugly head again after the, after the AUKUS nonsense of the last few days as well. So, um, you know, the, the risks are significantly different now compared to a month ago. They're much, much higher than they were a month ago have noticed that too, the multiple topics that investors are juggling at this point. I want to bring up China because you're closer to the action and have been closely watching the events, no doubt, around Evergrande, which has been described by some as a potential Lehman's moment for, for China, uh, the pushback in China about whether this company is too big to fail. What do you think the ramifications of Evergrande are and do you think authorities do have to step in? Again, that's, um, that's another you know, absolute imponderable. Um, what's clear? is that the Chinese authorities, you know, they have the balance sheet, they have the capability to prevent Evergrande becoming a systemic story. I think they are going to prevent it becoming absolutely systemic. But the question is, you know, how and will the market buy that? Because, um, you know, we think that uh, bondholders 
ordinary bondholders through wealth management products, they're, they're likely to get protected. We're less sure that shareholders and institutions are going to get protected. And therefore, it's the sort of secondary consequence. It's almost the game theory of what happens when, you know, when China decides who's going to take that hit and it allocates that hit, there's definitely a you know, hit to be taken. When that gets uh, proportioned out, then it's what the response is to that. And um, happening at the time where we've got all the crackdowns and reforms that are going on in China, it's 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 not a good backdrop for uh, for this story to play out. So um, I, I don't think it's a layman moment because I think the Chinese policymakers are, are, are probably a bit better than that, so they they wouldn't let it get to to, to that kind of scale. But it, it, it could be it could be ugly. Certainly, um, we, we we think it's going to get managed. We think China will turn on the liquidity taps at some point again soon. And and if all of that happens, this could be a buying opportunity for China. But, um, but you know, it's a whole new paradigm that nobody knows how to price. So uh, we'd, we'd probably just start, you know, taking small positions again in China uh, and probably sort of out of the money compared to where we are now. We'd look for the market to, to dip a bit further. Paul. Morning. Paul. Uh, you know I love you dearly, and you've already said you're fully invested, but I'm not sure I believe the words you say. 2015, Paul Gambles, we're in great depression conditions. Now a stock market collapse may occur because we're in a 1930s-style stock market collapse. September, where are we now? No, 2018, we're really terrified, equivalent to the levels we were the day before the 29 crash. 2020, uh, there is a faker tech bubble now than we were in 2000. Paul, you keep coming out with the really bearish scenarios to get noticed, but you're fully invested. I don't know if I believe you anymore, Paul. Because all these things have actually happened, Steve. If you look at them, when we said those, pretty much every single one of those things happened on cue, and that allowed us to uh, to go and get back uh, into Major a position crashes. of being fully invested again. So um, um, I'm not saying we timed everything perfectly. Of course, we didn't. Nobody does. And with this one, look, we're, we're not saying that there's a there's a, a, an absolute crash nailed on here. Far from it. What we're saying is it's a coin flip as to whether things are good or things are bad. And you know what? It's got the potential to be pretty extreme in either direction. So you're actually just better sitting it out for uh, for a while. And and seriously, it's the first time that I think we've been saying hold cash now for, for something like the best part of a couple of years. So um, uh, yeah, I think I think this is I think this is this is a, a moment. It's a potentially pivotal moment. And we've got no idea whether it's going to be a good or bad outcome. Paul, the only one of those that happened is we had the basically the, the, the crash on the basis of COVID, which you didn't call, by the way. Uh, what about this one about the, the faker tech bubble then? Since you said that in September 2020, we've had the most almighty rally on the Nasdaq as well. Are we still in the faker tech bubble than we were in 2000? So, Steve, if you if you remember about COVID, uh, you and I were sitting in the studio in January of 2020, and I was saying that, you know, this COVID thing could get out of hand. There could be a big problem here. And you were saying, hey, come on, everybody keep a, a perspective on this. Let's not uh, let's not panic. There's uh, there's only something like two dozen people dead so far. So uh, actually, in fairness, I think I think we did get the well, COVID bomb right. What I said I did say don't. I, I, I don't think I said uh, there's only two dozen people. I think, of course, I said don't panic. I don't think people should ever panic, no matter what the scenario <laughs> is. Well, but I don't think you called the stock market collapse on the basis of COVID, Paul. I think that would be a bit of a stretch, wouldn't it? Otherwise, why were you no, fully invested, or why were you invested at all? <laughs> Absolutely, we. Um... 
we didn't. Although what we did say was was be heavily invested in uh, in treasuries at that time, which uh, which actually uh, saw us through the stock market collapse in April last year pretty well. Um, yeah, look, I think I think the, uh, the 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 thing with the U.S. tech bubble is, you know, when when we talk about it, we're not really talking about tech. We're talking about a handful of egregiously overvalued stories that are out there. Um, and you look at, you know, you look at Tesla, um, you, you look at the fangs. Um, we don't believe that those valuations really are, are, are in any way, any way compelling. Uh, and certainly I think, um, you know, when we've made specific calls on Tesla, Tesla is now uh, is now lower than it was when, uh, when, we, when we made some of those calls. So um, I, I think that, uh, you look at U.S. tech. You, you know, it's it's actually um, it, it probably has run a lot farther than anybody might have expected a few years ago. But there's no way that you can make a value proposition for Fangs for Tesla right now. They're they're, they're they're just not good valuation opportunities. They may well benefit if we get a positive scenario, if we see policy coming to the rescue yet again. Uh, but um, but I, I I think that's um, that's taking a massive massive risk. Uh, and and I think it is it is it is a bubble. It hasn't burst yet since September last year. I agree. We're we're a year on, and that bubble is is if anything slightly bigger. But um, but that doesn't that doesn't stop it being a bubble. It uh, it, it really is perhaps the least compelling place in the market to, to invest on a valuation basis. But, it, you know, it's still got momentum. And that's why we're sort of poised on the precipice we are, that we could end up with a, with a, a really good outcome from here, or we could end up with a, with a really bad one. Well, I'll make sure I've got a coin that I can spin for the scenario to put my money on, Paul. Thank you very much indeed, as ever. You know I love your commentary, uh, even if I sometimes think you're a little bit, um, what's the word? Cassandra-like? I don't know. Uh, Paul Gamble's excellent work, as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Paul? Sorry? Steve, cheers. I was going to get... Yeah, you're very welcome, my friend. Uh, Paul Gamble's co-founder of uh, MBMG Group. Right, let us uh, move on, if we may. The Fed Chair, Jerome Powell, has ordered an ethics review. This is interesting. An ethics review after several officials disclosed they had made multi-million dollar trades in 2020. Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan is amongst those, wait for it, having traded Apple, Amazon and Delta Airlines. A Fed spokesman told CNBC the review was ordered because people, because the trust of the American people is essential for the Federal Reserve to carry out our important mission. Jeff, isn't it amazing? I know you've got a, a, an ad lib coming, but isn't it amazing that Fed officials are allowed to trade stocks, but humble CNBC anchors aren't allowed to go near personal investments like that? Quite extraordinary. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it raises a very interesting uh, background question about actually who would have the better insight into what was likely to happen next in the market. Say uh, a Fed council member or a CNBC anchor. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it, from that score? Uh, and the crazy thing is, you know, legislators in the United States also have slightly different rules under which they operate. So why previously Federal Reserve officials were uh, perhaps immune from this mandate, uh, I really don't understand. But you might also have thought that actually they would have pushed their holdings into a blind trust 
the minute they stepped up to that position and some facility would have been available to do that. Otherwise, it just sounds very, very odd. But this is the same story around company executives, isn't it? Uh, the ability to trade stock in the company that uh, they effectively are managing. They're first-hand with the information and then can put those trades on. It's probably no different. I mean, we spend the day analysing what has crossed from the Fed, what that language is, what the tea leaves are suggesting around monetary policy, which we know has an extraordinary impact on risk-on-risk-off assets. So the Fed get what gets to, to make that trade first before we can tell viewers and dissect it. Well, I, th- I, I would beg to disagree slightly because I think if you are an insider uh, in a company, uh, then it's well understood that you're going to have inside information, which is why there is a whole industry in the financial community that spends its time just watching insider trading activity, whether they're buying or they're selling. And then they report that through magazines and websites and they say that, OK, this is a sign that this executive has great faith in where the company goes next or is losing faith. But of course, as we all know, you know, when it comes down to living your life, there are all sorts of reasons why you want to be buying or selling or raising money or investing money. And some of that may be to do with getting divorced or buying a yacht or investing in a new supercar or getting your latest Learjet. So it's a bit of an unreliable, it's an unreliable indicator as to what happens next with companies. But it's always nice just to see what's going on as a way of confirming an opinion you may already have about whether you're going to invest or not. Yeah, I take your point. But when it does come to the Fed, we think about uh, those who might be invested in decision making. There are extraordinary consequences for the market. It's often the biggest factor in the room. You know, We've spoken about that before. There's so many different factors. But the number one might be a Fed taper at this point and it might be a retreat for monetary policy. So perhaps time that uh, the principles are raked over in terms of stock trading. We're going to a break. Coming up on the show, France pulls the plug on a gala dinner in D.C. as it loses out on a multi-billion dollar deal, a submarine deal with Australia. And uh, we're going to take you to break with uh, a live shot of the LDP hustings. This is happening in Tokyo now. We are hearing from Aseko Noda, the Internal Affairs and Communications Minister, one of uh, a number of candidates who are hoping to take over the role at the head of the LDP and also the head of the next Japanese government. Yeah, plus I'm told uh, today's podcast is is really rather good. Best one we've had in the last 12 hours or so. Uh, For more on President Biden's plans to fund his multi-trillion dollar fiscal plan, check out the aforementioned Scorebox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
A quick look at the Asian markets uh, mixed in the Friday trade. Uh, you can see Japan stocks putting on another six-tenths of a percent. Hong Kong bouncing back as well. And don't forget there's been huge concerns across that market and very di- various different sectors from property developers to what we were seeing in uh, gaming, Macau, also the internet space. And you've seen it expressed also through the lens of the United States where effectively China internet uh, ETF stocks have been down 6.5 percent over the week, which has uh, spelt a lot of volatility for the Hong Kong and China markets. And you can see that split picture playing out today with Shanghai again reversing. Australia down a similar tune, eight-tenths of a percent. Some of the pain coming through from the mining sector in Australia today. A look at uh, some of those stocks and you can see 11% off Fortescue Metals, uh, the big iron ore provider. BHP is down 4% and Rio down 4.4%. So it does set the scene for a little bit of selling in the resources sector here in Europe this morning. Let's get out to Will Kaluris for more. Will, there was a report early in the week about steel output in China that seems to have triggered some selling in iron ore. But just how steep is the selling in context and what does it mean for the outlook? Yeah, there has been an incredible amount of selling in terms of that steel output. Yes, we did see that 13.2% drop for the month of August, but there's also, you've got to factor in this expectation. Obviously, prices are looking forward that there are going to be substantial curbs to come in Q4. Some are even suggesting that they're going to be cutting from November onwards. We've also got the Beijing Winter Olympic Games. So other analysts are suggesting that the cuts are going to continue from January to March next year. But then you have this huge overhang when it does come to Evergrande as well. And that is spooking a lot of people. And it's spooking a lot of investors in the iron ore market as well. Because when you look at the numbers and you put it all together and say 30% or 30 to 35% of all of the steel in China goes into the real estate sector, 50% of the steel goes into you know, the industrial complex, then you do have to acknowledge the fact that if there was to be any kind of risk when it does come to Evergrande, any kind of debt risk or default risk and the company wasn't able to function, that that would impact the steel demand story coming out of China as well. And you've seen that the absolute smashing of all of these iron ore miners here in Australia in the course of today's session. Like you mentioned, Fortescue is off by 11% and the, the volume is absolutely astronomical and it actually sort of aligns with the, the, the crazy amount of volume that we are seeing on the January 2022, the most traded contracts for the Dalian as well. That's come below 100 US dollars a ton when you, when you do the math on the, the yuan conversion. And then at the same time, it's not just isolated to these iron ore miners that are feeling the pinch today. You've had, I suppose, other news out of China that the NDRC is looking to yet again tap into the strategic reserves when it comes to copper, aluminium and zinc. You had also that, I suppose, downside pressure coming the way of the US with that fee of potentially further royalty taxes coming in for the miners there. And we've seen it play out in the Australian session because all of the the copper miners, the gold miners, the coal miners, they're all getting absolutely creamed as well, Jeff. Well, terrific. Thank you so much for that. We'll catch up with you uh, later on in the program. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva is accused of intervening to boost China's rankings in the World Bank's influential business climate report. This according to a report from law company Wilma Hale, commissioned by the World Bank. It alleges Gorgieva pressured staff to raise China's point score in the 2018 Doing Business report at a time when she was seeking Beijing's backing for a big capital increase. Uh, Gorgieva says she, quote, disagrees fundamentally with the report's findings. 
France uh, responded to losing its multi-billion dollar subcontract amid the new AUKUS pact by cancelling dinner. The French embassy pulled the plug on a gala event in Washington, D.C., meant to mark cooperation between the two countries. The move reflects French anger at the U.S.-U.K.-Australia defence deal, which scuppered plans to sell nuclear submarines uh, to Australia. Uh, China has applied to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP, in an effort to bolster its international clout. Sam has the report. China has formally applied to join the CPTPP trade pact. It comes as Beijing's looking to boost its economic influence, but also as there's been some suggestion it's seeking to counterbalance recent moves by the Biden team to rally support in the region to counter the threats and challenges posed by China. Now, adding to that pressure is the trilateral security pact just announced by the US, the UK and Australia. While some have avoided saying that's directed at Beijing, some analysts have pointed out it's intended to counter China's aggressive policies and growing influence in the region. Now, China has slammed this as Cold War mentality, uh, but there has been some suggestion joining the CPTPP would be a major boost for China after the signing of the RCEP agreement last year. That was described as a geopolitical victory for Beijing, but also reducing the perception that China is looking more inward with its dual circulation growth strategy. So this also marks a change of tune from the Chinese government, which was originally reluctant to join something championed by the US, but President Xi Jinping put an end to that debate last year and Beijing has since been signalling its interest. Now, China is the second economy to formally request to join the pact after the UK this year. It still needs the green light, though, from the 11-member group in order to be accepted, and this could cause some friction among countries who have different relationships with China, suggesting it may not be a quick or easy prospect. In Singapore, I'm Sam Bardis. Back to you. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.